So, thank you to everybody for tuning in, attending, and um, <coughs> joining on Zoom. Tonight, we are continuing with our study of the Paitanim, of the various Paitanim throughout history. Last week, we studied the Colonimus family. The Colonimus family was one of the famous uh, Jewish families that immigrated from Italy to Eretz Ashkenaz, or the Rhineland, really. And they were one of the first rabbinic families to establish yeshivot and to establish Torah in Germany. And we studied their uh, poetic activity, at least the earlier forms of it, which really is a symbolic, uh, almost a symbolic study for Ashkenaz since the Colonimus family, by and large, was Italian. And at least the early members of the Colonimus family really represent early Italian poetry. The children of that poetry, really, the, uh, the students of that poetry, found themselves in the lands that we today would refer to, uh, at least as Jews, as Ashkenaz. So tonight I want to continue a little bit with the next major Paitanim that follow this family and this style into the world of Ashkenaz. And that the first Paitan of note would be Rabbi Shimon Bar Yitzchak. Shimon Bar Yitzchak, not to be confused with Shlomo Yitzchak, which would be Rashi, or Shimon Bar Yitzchak lived much earlier than Rashi. He is one of the first poets of the land of Ashkenaz, the first, definitely the first one to be born in what we would call Germany today. So I'm doing, I'm, I'm choosing Shimon Bar Yitzchak much for uh, stylistic purposes, as far as when it comes to the styles of poetry uh, following post-classical and Kiliric styles of poetry, the Italians pushed uh, and pushed the envelope of Kiliric poetry a little further, and, and classical poetry, they, they uh, innovated, added more Yotzrot, and therefore Shimon Bar Yitzchak and others in Germany and Ashkenaz in France uh, continued this tradition of innovative uh, post-classical uh, uh, piyut. Now, in order to understand this figure and who he was and the biography of this great man, we need to understand a little bit of the history. So the first Jews, and, and basically what happened? What, why in the world were Jews living? Uh, did Jews come to live in what we call Germany today? So the first Jews moved to this area already in Roman times. And it, it must be understood that at, for, most, for much of Jewish history, Western Europe was the periphery of Jewish activity. For the most part, the Jewish centers of learning and society were concentrated in Eretz Yisrael and in uh, Syria or Iraq today, right, Bavel, and lastly in Egypt. Roughly around the Mediterranean area was where the centers of the Jewish societies lived, and they typically drew their influence from centralized yeshivot or centralized rabbinic powers. For example, the uh, yeshivot in Bavel and the yeshivot in Eretz Yisrael, which all had their jurisdictions, which branched out to different provinces and different areas. And they controlled both legally and, um, if, and in other matters if, through influence, most of the life of Jewish society around the world. Any Jews who were going to live in Western Europe would have been living on a periphery, which 
didn't really have communication with the main centers of Judaism. And therefore, if they were there, usually they were there for business purposes. They were there to make money. They were there for commerce and trade. And the communities there were smaller and typically not as permanent. There are records of Jewish people living in Western Europe, in France and in Germany throughout the Dark Ages, but we don't have any, you know, uh, we don't have any evidence of significant communities. We have some, we, there are, most, most of the sources are Christian in nature, where there are some Christian laws here and some Christian laws there. Uh, rough, just to, 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 to qualify the, the legal st status of Jews and what they are and aren't allowed to trade for, but they're never really an emphasis in most of the evidence, most of the historical evidence we have of the Dark Ages. It wasn't until the French kings, the Frankish kings, like Charlemagne and his son uh, Louis the Pious and then Charles the Bald, that you finally begin to see um, more significant Jewish more significant Jewish activity and Jewish settlement in Northwestern Europe. And the reason for this is simple, because these kings, even a little bit before Charlemagne, were very favorable towards the Jews. And when, when, the, uh, when they, during their reign, they offered charters, uh, licenses, for the Jews to come to their lands and give them certain monopolies and give them certain licenses to conduct certain businesses. The kings weren't foolish and they understood that the Jews were tremendously skilled traders, tremendously skilled physicians, and they were the keys to the power of many of the Islamic empires at the time. So it was attractive for the, for the Frankish kings and among other Western European kings to import Jews to their area because they understood that importing Jews had a tremendous economic advantage. Now, the problem with this is that the Jews didn't want to stay. For the most part, you know, the, they might have been skilled traders, but the Jews didn't really stick around. They weren't allowed to own land under Christian law. They were only allowed to be uh, bankers or physicians or whatever. And they were, they were skilled merchants. They could hop back on their boat and go back home. So for the most part, the communities there weren't very happy sticking around. But for the French kings, keeping them was critical, especially like some of the history here is that, you know, the Roman Empire used to used to be very large. But after it fell, uh, you had the it's splitting into the Holy Roman Empire and the Byzantine uh, in the West and then the Byzantine Empire in the East. But then when the when the uh, the Saracen invasions occurred, meaning the Muslims begin begin eating up North Africa and eating up so many huge areas of land, the Muslims disrupted the trade routes. And no longer could the East and the West trade from, from the extremes very easily. So the Jews were a very important link, like the, the famous Radonite merchants. They were able to, to speak multiple languages. The Jews had friends in every port. And the Jews found ways to get stuff from China. That's the way, till today, <laughs> how it is with Jewish merchants. So what we, some of the first evidence we have of this effort to bring Jews to early Ashkenaz, or to, to let's call it to France, is when Charlemagne sent a Charlemagne sent a um, a convoy to one of the Abbasid uh, emperors, and one of his um, one of his emissaries was called Isaac the Jew, and one of his requests to the Abbasid caliph was to please send him a rabbi. He's like, I need a rabbi for my community to instruct the Jews because you know they, they're not happy and they really need a rabbi. So that's some of the earliest uh, evidence we have for this. And as we mentioned at the end of last week's shiur, um, Ramosha Berconimus from Italy was one of the first of these rabbanim 
to migrate, uh, let me just uh, admit Gary here. As we mentioned in last week's shiur, uh, Moshe Barclonimus, the great scholar from Northern Italy, was one of the first scholars to migrate from, uh, from, the, from, from the Northern areas, I'm sorry, from, from, the, from a more Eastern area of the Holy Roman Empire into uh, Western Europe, just so that the community there could be made happy. Apparently, eventually one of the kings figured out that he did have a rabbi in his territory and he paid him or somehow instructed him to move to uh, Western Europe. One, as I mentioned, the, um, the, for a good amount of time, the Jews there were, were prosperous. They did have a good time. They did have a significant success building communities in uh, Northwestern Europe. Part of the reason for this, part of their success is not just the kings understood their value, the kings wanted to protect them, but this is something we're going to need to turn back to even as we study Spain and as we study other areas of Europe, and that is the, the Latin legal term of servi regis, which means that they, the Jews had the legal status of reporting directly to the king. And because they weren't full citizens and they did not have the same citizenship as the Christians, from a tax perspective, the Jews paid taxes directly to the king, which could be incredibly, incredibly profitable for the king. And also, the Jews could only report under, let's say there was a lawsuit against Jews, they could only be uh, educated in front of the king. And therefore, the kings, who ha whose most of their bankers were Jewish, and most of their biggest merchants were Jewish, really, really loved the Jews because they could sometimes, uh, sometimes the tax revenue, 30 to 40% of their tax revenue, could come from the Jews alone. And therefore, the, the Jews prospered in this area. It really wasn't until the beginning of the 11th century that we find persecutions and problems that the Jewish communities had in Northwestern Europe. And the reason for this is sadly both the Crusades and a lot of the radical Christianity of the kings like Henry II who wanted to force baptize um, uh, tremendous areas of, uh, of Jews. So for a good 200 years, 250 years, the, the communities in Northwestern Europe began to grow with relative safety and relative um, prosperity. So what began to happen was that because they were in the periphery of the Jewish centers, they had to develop their own societies. They didn't, ha they didn't report directly to the Yeshivot Bavel. They weren't under those Rishuyot. They didn't report directly to the, the yeshivot in Eretz Yisrael. They weren't under their rishiyot either. They, it wasn't like those yeshivot were going to appoint the dayanim and appoint the rabbis for their community. So they had to develop their own system. And, and when rabbis began migrating to Western, to, to Western Europe, that was when they began to function. And they actually, the Jewish communities began to function in a way where they could build and they could prosper. And, and historians love to talk about the Kahila structure, how, how they quickly developed this ad hoc system, which became very permanent, where you would have the Tuvehair, right? The, you know, the, the distinguished members of the community in charge of the community. Underneath them, they would appoint a rabbi and a parnas, right? Like a president of the community. And then they would have chevrot, like the chevra kadisha, the chevra of bikur cholim, and uh, chevra of rofei cholim, all, all sorts of different chevrot, different haknasat uh, orchim, different uh, chairs, different boards for every single need for the community. And unlike the way things worked in Bavel and in Eretz Yisrael, if there was rabbinic action required, they wouldn't 
they wouldn't send a letter to the, to the main yeshiva and then wait six weeks, 12 weeks to get a reply. Instead, they would collaborate and communicate between the rabbis of various cities and eventually come out with a, with a psak halacha or takana or gzeira. For example, one of these synods, which is very famous, would be, this, would be the, the, um, the, the takana of Rabbeinu Gershom, right? Of Rabbeinu Gershom, uh, where Rabbeinu Gershom brought together the rabbis of various cities and they, and they signed a cherem against people uh, marrying more than one wife. That's just one example of, of that kind of collaboration and that kind of communication. So again, this is a new society, a, a completely new society of Jews, where they're free to experiment, they're free to create their own new Jewish society, and that really birthed Ashkenaz Jewry. Um, th- that was really the birth of Ashkenaz Jewry as its own, as its own breed, its own ethnicity, its own, its own uh, family tree, uh, so to speak, of Jewish history. So what does this have to do with poetry? The first, um, the first poets that were active in northwestern Germany were, as I mentioned, the, those of the Kalonimus family and their kin and their students. These were the first people who were writing poetry in northwestern Europe. However, soon after these uh, rabbis arrived from Italy to Germany and to France, there, because they instituted yeshivot, other people, sorry, Jews from the existing communities in France and from the existing communities in Germany flocked to them to begin studying. The first two most famous people who became uh, locally trained rabbis was Rabbeinu Gershom Meor HaGola and Rabbi Shimon Ben Yitzchak. Rabbi Shimon Ben Yitzchak, who we'll discuss tonight, was the older contemporary of Rabbeinu Gershom. He was born in around the year 950. And we know that his full name was Rabbeinu Shimon Ben Yitzchak Ben Abun. And the legend goes that Rabbi, Rabbi Abun, this person whose name was Abun, actually came from Le, uh, Le Mans. Is that how you say it in French? L-E-M-A-N-S. Uh, Le Mans? Le, Le Mans. Oh, I, I don't know how to precisely say it, but it's spelled Mem Nun Samach, a Mem Nun Sin. So the Le Mans. Okay, so uh, this, this Rabbi Abun came from Le Mans in France and... and his son Rabbi Yitzchak moved to Mainz uh, in, in Germany and he, uh, his son Rabbi Shimon immediately went to go learn by one of these yeshivot alongside Rabbi Nagir Shom. I believe they were both Talmidim of Rabbi Huda Hazaken. Rabbi Huda Hazaken was, is more of a mysterious figure because we don't know precisely where he learned, but there's a dispute among historians where he learned and who he learned by. It appears that he was trained in Italy. He was one of the Italian imports. Rabbi Yudah Zaken was the teacher of Rabbi Gershom and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yitzchak. So these two uh, were the first locally trained uh, Rabbanim. Uh, like, uh, I don't know what a, good, what a good example of this is. The first are Shmuel Kamenetskis or the first, you know, like in the American-born Gedalim. Uh, like the first German-born Gedalim who became the, uh, the these Chavrusas became the first uh, the, the first leading rabbis of the German communities. So if you look at the folklore that speaks about their biography, the, the, the Ashkenaz folklore, so to speak, Midrashim, is always really fun. It's written with a, you know, somewhat of a naive tone. It's very much, there's a lot of storytelling. It, it's unclear about how much of it is inspired by its, 
zeitgeist from its contemporary non-Jewish storytelling sources. But they say all sorts of wonderful, fantastic things about Rishim and Bar Yitzchak. They say that he came from Beit David, that his family came from the line of David HaMelech. They say that his face looked like a Pnei HaMalach, that he had a nice long beard, that he had a beautiful voice, that he married a woman who was related to royalty, that he was a Mulumad Benissim, that he was trained in miracles, that he was Mivatel Gzerot, he interceded for decrees, and he was dedicated to uh, the Tirchei Tzibor, that he would always uh, do things uh, for the Tzibor. Sometimes they would call him Rabna, like with the, the fancy Eretz Yisrael form of, of, uh, of, uh, of title, Rabna Shimon HaGadol. They give him all sorts of, of, of um, illustrious titles to Shimon Bar Yitzchak. So, the, for a very long time, just to, to sum up a little bit more of his life, for a very long time it was known his, uh, his, where he was buried. We don't know when he, was, when he died, but we do know that he was buried in Mainz. And for a very long time his grave, his, um, his Makom Kivura, his cave, its location was known, but then for like half a, half a century it was lost. And then at the, I believe it was at the end of the 19th century, somebody found his caver again, which you could visit today in Mainz. There's two Matzevot. One is from 1762, and it has one Nusach, and then under it is one from the 13th century. So there's the, the, the first Matzeva for his caver has been lost, but then there's two after that. One from the 13th century, one from the 17th century, which basically says, you know, Kan Makom Rabna Shimon Hagadol Ben Yitzchak. Very, very simple caver in Germany today. So... Just because we're talking a little, bit, a little bit about his biography, there is a story told about him regarding Piyutim, which, regarding Piyut, which I thought would be fun to discuss tonight. This is a bit of a long story, so I don't know how much of it we could include. And it comes from a book called Midrash Beit HaMedrash. And the Midrash Beit HaMedrash was, was a medrash, a medrash, so to speak, a collection of stories put together at the beginning, uh, at the middle, I believe, of the 19th century by somebody named Aaron Yelenik. And he took a lot of manuscripts and a lot of stories that have been circulating in Europe <coughs> over the centuries, and he put them together in a book that he called Midrash Beit HaMedrash. And he gives a very nice long story there on page 148 of what he calls Cheder Hamishi, right? The fifth room of the base Medrash. On page 148. And I'll share it with you now just to give you an idea of of how interesting and fantastic this story is. Now, it is written with a bit of a, a naive lean, um, and it, it's not, it's not uh, what's the word, so everyone can be as, crit as critical as they want to, but historians believe there must be some grain of truth to this story. So it goes something like this, and I'll just start with the beginning in Hebrew. It starts like this, Right, so there was a story with the Shimon Hagadol who who lived by the by the Rhine River. In the time in that time, they didn't call the area Ashkenaz; they called it the Rhineland, right? By the by the Narainus. Below Hayash Losha Gilioneira i Tuluim Betoch Beto. 
Very strange thing. What I think it's saying is that he had three scrolls, which you could see, meaning three telescopes hanging in his house because he was such a brilliant scholar. He must have had three telescopes. Asher Bahem Ra'at Kol Asher Hayav Asher He was able to see everything that was and everything that would be. So either they mean telescopes or they mean some sort of kaleidoscope because a telescope hadn't been invented until the 1600s. So they probably mean some sort of mirror, magic mirror or kaleidoscope with which he was able to pr prophesy and see the future. Okay, whatever. Ve'achere moto, and after he died, kivro. And after he died, a spring came forth from his, from, from his gravestone because he was such a holy man, whatever that means. Okay, so let me read to you the story. It says Rabbi Shimon had, was, was, a, was a tremendous scholar and he had a son named Elchanan. This part is probably true the, because we have a piyut from him where he signs it not just with his own name but also with the, the names Yitzchak and the name Elchanan. So most likely it is believed that those were the names of his sons. So one Shabbos day, they had a, a non-Jewish employee who would come and she would adjust the fireplace probably for heat for the Jewish residents of that home, including Rabbi Shimon. And Rabbi Shimon and his wife were not home, they had already gone to shul, right? They went to Beit Hashem Lit Palel, and they only left the maid with young Elchanan. And the maid saw, the maid saw that the Gaisha woman who had come to adjust the oven was playing with Elchanan. And she thought, okay, everything's fine. She's just playing with her, with him, and uh, she's gonna play with him a little bit, and she's gonna bring him back home. But uh, for a little while, she's, she looks around, and Elchanan didn't come back. And apparently, the maid decided that she was going to be, that she was going to, she loved this kid so much, he was so cute, that she was going to do a favor to her god, uh, Yeshu, and she was going to uh, uh, bring him to baptize him and, and bring her back to, to the church to baptize him and make him disappear. And Shimon came home and his wife, and they... Um, I'm sorry, I don't usually do story time, so <laughs> I'm not so good at this. So Reb Shimon, Reb Shimon comes back uh, with his wife, and they can't find, they can't find his son, and, and the maid is hysterical. She says that the, that the Gaish lady disappeared with him, and they fasted, and they yelled, and she, they blamed the maid, and they had a whole manhunt for the child, and they fasted, and, and they prayed, but Hashem did not respond to their prayers, and the boy was lost forever. So now it says that the, the story continues that the, bo the boy was brought to the priests and they raised him and they taught him and he became the most, he was such a genius like his father, he became one of the greatest of all uh, the priests. And they brought him to the academy and to, he went from, from academy to academy and he became one of the greatest priests until he came to Rome, like the highest academies of the priests. And over there he learned and learned and he became greater and greater until he was appointed as a cardinal. Finally, um, he was younger, but known as one of the smartest, brightest, wisest cardinals. And when the, the current pope died, they couldn't find somebody as, as wise and as, as, as uh, astute and as great as this young cardinal, and they chose him to be the next pope. Okay, so we have a Jewish pope sitting in the, in the Vatican, or wherever it was, I have no idea where. So it, somewhere in Rome. So this pope knew that he was Jewish, says, says the story. And he, want really, and he knew that his father was with Shimon Hagadol in Mainz. And he really, really wanted to see his father again. So he was so, he was so scared that he wouldn't be able to get away with it, to invite his father or, or to let anybody else know that he, was, that, he was, that he might be interested in becoming Jewish again. So he had a tremendously good idea. He said, what would I do in order to bring my father? I will, I will write a decree and I will send it to Mainz, and it'll be such a horrible decree 
that the Jews will be terrified and they're going to send their dignitaries to come and intercede uh, directly to me. So he sent a decree that said you can't keep Shabbos. He sent a decree that said you can't, uh, you can't go to mikvah and you can't do milah. And, 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 and the, the governor, uh, when he received this decree in Mainz, was astonished. He's like, this, this pope has been the nicest pope in the world to Jews. What's going on? So as the story goes, he said, you know what, Jews, uh, you could secretly do all your Mila, your Tevila stuff until send some dignitaries to, to Rome, find out if this is legit, because, you know, the stamp looked very legitimate, find out if it's legit and if, and if you can come back and, and be fine. So the Jews, the Jews sent, uh, a, they sent an assembly all the way to Rome. They met the Jews of Rome and the Jews of Rome told them, what are you talking about? This, this priest, uh, this, this pope, he sent, he sent this decree that's not possible. Um, it must be it must be a forgery and they show them the paper and they're like no oh wow that's actually the stamp it must be a xerum in a shamayim that Hashem did this to you and so you're going to have to uh, you're going to have to intercede with the Pope yourself so they send they they find a, an intercessor who's close to the Pope and they arrange an appointment with her Shimon Bar Yitzchak who is one of the chief dignitaries and the the Pope and so as the Jewish dignitaries approach the Pope is sitting and playing chess says the story and he's playing chess with one of his one of his colleagues and says the story of Shimon Bar Yitzchak was the greatest chess player that ever lived and his son was also a great chess player because he learned it from his father and he also had the same talent as his father and when the uh when when the father approached he said uh here we go uh, hold up let me get a little further here he asked him, I believe he asked him to play with him chess. Oh, sorry. First thing he did was, first thing he did was he asks him a pilpul shayla. He asks him a question in philosophy or some chachma, which is so hard. Hashem Yitzchak is astounded. And they began discussing, discussing wisdom, discussing philosophy. And, the, um, and they're very, very impressed with, with each other. And they're both, both astonished at how brilliant each other are. Then he invites him to play a game of chess. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yitzchak is astonished by how amazingly talented this Pope is at chess. He never met a person who could beat him in his life. So uh, as, as, the, as the Pope starts to hint him that he's his son, he asks everyone to leave the room, very much in the Yosef HaTzadik kind of style. And he hints to everybody in the room, to, he tells everybody in the room to leave. And he tells him, um, here, let me just read to you the language. He says, Ha'im lo don't you recognize me? V'lo hivina b'shimon Maria mezun divrei ha'pipior. V'yan, eim zehit kabati lahakirat kodecha hakadosh. Yosef, you know, like, what are you talking about? Uh, I, I was, I was uh, delighted to, to meet your holy presence. He says, avi didi, my father, him lo aved memecha bincha odenu nar b'reshit yamecha. Didn't you lose your son when, you were, when he was very young? And he was astounded and he was shocked. And so they had a tearful reunion. And then he finally says to him, and again, this, this, is where, this is also where the story gets a little bit far-fetched. He tells him, Is there, is there hope for me? Do I have atonement before Hashem? Will Hashem forgive me for being, for being a Pope? And he answered, My son, Take this worry out of your heart. You were, you were uh, taken against your will. Aval... Uh, hold up. This is a little bit, a little bit unclear here. Okay, so what he does is, so basically he says, "Don't worry, there's a path for Teshuvah." So now the now the Pope says, "Okay, how in the world am I going to 
get out of my position here. Let's say I want to. Let's say I want to become a. Let's say I want to become Balchuba. What am I going to do? So he sends Shimon Bar Yitzchak back home to Mainz, and he says, "I'm going to try to meet you. I'm going to try to get back home. Tell my mother I'm alive." And so he goes home. His mother cries. She says, "Wow, he's alive, but he's the Pope. He's never going to come back." And what does he end up doing? The Pope uh, decides to to escape. What he does is, according to the story, he writes. Uh, it says he writes a, a a polemic against Christianity, a scathing polemic, and he writes how terrible the religion is. He puts it into a book, a, a, a defeat against Christianity. He sends it to all the, the the priests and the cardinals in the Vatican, and he tells them, "You all have to read this tom- tomorrow." And then the night before, he vanishes and he travels to Mainz to, to to run away and be with his family. And nobody in the in the in the in the, in the church had any idea what happened to him. Now comes the part about piyut that I promised would eventually show up. Al about this story. For this story, Reb Shimon Hagadol wrote a yotzer, a type of a type of piyut for for Kriyat Shema for the second day of Rosh Hashanah. Be'omer Boani says in it, Kel Chanan Nachalato Binoam Lehashbar. Right. Kel Chanan is short, is, is a remez to El Chanan, that Hashem, uh, the gracious one, Chanan Nachlato, who, uh, who graciously gave us his inheritance, bin Noam Lehashpar, is, is pleasant to speak of beautifully. Lehashpar is a pun for shofar, for shofar, right? Because this is a, um, uh, a piyut for Rosh Hashanah. V'lachen al yaminu hakorim, the readers should not believe, ki devrei hasipur vetefel, uh, they don't believe that this story is nothing. They're true, and they're provable, and there's nothing untruth, untruthful about this story. He knew the chess game because he's Jewish. He knew he was son, his son because he played chess with him so well. Okay, uh, Fascinating, interesting story. <laughs> Let's look at that Yotzer for a minute uh, together, and then we will. If uh, hold up, let's let's discuss for a second. Uh, Rabbi Shimon, um, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yitzchak's poetic style in general. So, in 1938, Avraham Haberman, who was an outstanding scholar of medieval Jewish literature, and Quite a, honestly, quite an interestingly devout Jew. He he compiled the piyutim of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yitzchak into a sefer called Piyute Rabbi Shimon Bar Yitzchak, and at the end he also added uh, piyutim of Rabbi Moshe Bar Klonimus, since we have so few of them. And Rabbi Moshe Bar Klonimus really was the first poet on on in the country, even though he wasn't native, he wasn't a local. He was the first poet. So at the end of the book of Piyute uh, uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yitzchak, you can find you can find his piyutim. So this is findable in Hebrew books if anyone's interested. This is the called Piyutei Rabbi Shimon Bar Yitzchak. So in general, his Piyutim, as I said, are very much in the Kalirian style. And he finds inspiration, again, a classical style, but a post-classical style. Most of the European poets such as him, they innovate on the form. They don't stick to the rigid form of the classical Eretz Yisrael Paitanim, like they would, let's say there's a seven-part structure for a Yotzer and an eight-part structure for a Kedushta, and this one has to have a, uh, uh, a quad, and this one has to have a terse, uh, terse, this one has to have a couplet, and 
you, you can have one which is going to be a rahit. You could have one, let's say there's an eight poem uh, a collection. The first one has to be a rahit, and the second one has to, has to be structured this way. The third one has to be structured that way. This one has your name in it. This one has psukim in it. Very, very rigid structures of the classical poets. They weren't as rigid. They, ma they managed to innovate and add certain genres, uh, change things up a little bit, put, put acrostics in, one, in, in putim where there weren't previously acrostics, uh, or add rhyme where there wasn't previously rhyme, omit putim where there, were, where there previously were putim, or add putim where there previously weren't. Here is one of his more famous uh, putim for a yotzer for Shabbat Chol HaMoed of Pesach. Now, he was very... Uh, he he took a he took emphasis to to write piyutim for holidays which he thought or Velezer Haklier didn't write a holiday write a piyut for. Many people of that era believed that Velezer Haklier had only written written piyutim for the first day of every Chag because he was from Eretz Yisrael. So these Paitanim decided to write piyutim for the second day of Chag for for many of the Chagim. So here's one for Cholamoyed for Shabbat and Cholamoyed Pesach. And it's basically based on a pute we looked on we looked at last week from Rav Shlomo Habavli, and it goes Ahuvecha Ahevucha Meisharim, where this entire pute is built upon Shir Hashirim. So it goes like this: Ahuvecha Ahevucha Meisharim, Shiratcha Nognim Veshorim, Acharimo Kidemu Sharim, Shir Hashirim, Emunati Teichukot, Mipel Penatakot, Amarot Chech Amamtikot, Yishakeni Menishikot. It's a very beautiful. Piyut. He's very, very skilled um, Paitan. His language is really beautiful, much more readable and much more, uh, much more welcoming, I would say, than, than m many of the earlier, earlier classical Paitanim. He will include Midrashim, but he's not as dense as the earlier Paitanim. His language is a lot more understandable, a lot more relatable. It's similar, very much as like a student of Rishul Mahabavli and the Colonimus family, he brings a fresh, like a, a freshness to the Calarian style of poetry. Now, he doesn't have sophisticated styles of rhyme like the Arabic poets, and he doesn't have sophisticated styles of meter like the Arabic poets. But despite those, let's call them limitations, he does bring his poetry to a degree of poetic beauty, which is really incontestable. There was a debate in the 19th and 20th century among scholars about really the inferiority so to speak, of Ashkenaz Piyot to Spanish poetry. The Spanish poetry is, is, is really beautiful and world famous for its beauty. And I mean the Jewish, the Jewish Spanish uh, Paitanim were world famous for the beauty of their Piyotim. And so there's always this inferiority complex among the, Ash, among the Ashkenazi scholars who would criticize their own Paitanim for not bringing their own piyutim to poetic beauty. So there, there is some debate here, and Rishul Mabar Yitzchak is brought up as one of those paitanim and Rishul Mahabavli who, who really reached the heights of, of, of poetic beauty in their form. So despite not carrying over Arabic forms of, of artistic beauty to uh, piyut, these paitanim definitely advanced the classical uh, piyut to a degree where it really, really shone. And they took, some would argue they took the artistic style too far. Regardless of the artistic, of the artistic discussion, their piyutim survive among the Ashkenazi tefilot all the way until this day. Now, among the paitanim, it, just typically speaking, his, his tone is a lot more serious. Um, he's not one of the, 
more flowery, happier Paitanim. And it could be because he lived, he was born in around, around 950. He probably lived into the 11th century when there was many persecutions of the Jewish people. Like, as I said, Henry II banished all the Jews out of Mainz. He lived in Mainz. And if, Henry, if the Emperor Henry banished the Jews out of Mainz, at least for a couple of years, that must have been a catastrophe for the Jewish community. So he was no stranger to suffering. He was no stranger to calamity. Therefore, there's a, an overall uh, darker tone or more serious tone to his Piyutim. And I just wanted to show you before, I, before we close this area where, what, what he was talking about. In the middle of the Yotzer for, uh, what are we here, for Rosh Hashanah, in the Gufa Yotzer part, we have this line which the story was talking about. Kel Hanana Chalato Benoam Lehashpar Yidam Kirol Kobratav Bimispar Vititav Lahashem Mishor Par Kadosh. Right, it's supposed to carry on to the next word. So it begins Shof, Zechor, Shofar Melech, right, Zechoniot, Shofrot, and Malchiot. It's a very, very beautiful Yotzer for, for Rosh Hashanah. Now, okay, let's maybe look at, is there another one I wanted to show? Yes, there's one more I wanted to show you. This is called the Yotzer for um, the Yotzer for the Nis, for a Chatuna. So, the, if you want to be fancy, there is a fancy a fancy English word for this called epithalamia, the, an epithalamia uh, epithalamium, I think. That is the fancy word in English for a poem written for the occasion of a wedding for the bride or the groom. And when I first uh, saw this word, I'm like, oh, hold up. I'm reconnecting. Oh, hell, Zoom. Give me a second. We're having technical difficulties. Okay, sorry about the technical difficulty. So the, this, yeah, I thought about the epithalamus, right? Like the, that part of your brain. So I looked up the etymology of it, and apparently it means like the inner chamber, like upon the inner chamber. So in Greek, that could also mean upon the, the bridal chamber. So epithal epithalamium basically means a type of poetry written for a chatuna. And what's interesting about the fact that he wrote this type of poetry, that, uh, this type of piyut, is that he preceded the Spanish poets. The Spanish poets, the, the Jewish Spanish poets, were famous for many of their piyutim for, for upon, upon weddings. But generally, the Spanish paitanim will speak about uh, weddings uh, with the theme of the joy of love, and they'll bring... Uh, proof texts from Shia Hashirim, and they're a lot more artistic in, in, in the modern sense. They're a lot more fanciful in their wedding poems. But the, let me, let me share Roshim Bar Yitzchak again, if I can. But in Roshim Bar Yitzchak, he's a lot more, he's a lot more serious. And hold up, let's see if I can share my screen properly. Uh, Control W, does that work? Yes, okay. So I, here you have his Yotzer for, for Nisuin, where he, it's, oh, I'm sorry, this is the Yotzer. I'm looking for the Rashut. The Rashut is later on page Kuf Dalit, I think. Sorry, give me a second. He wrote what's called a Rashut for Chatanim. A Rashut means like you're requesting permission. So, Mei Rashut, it begins, Shochen Ad Vekadosh Mokhalel Eretz Vetevel. He begins by taking Rashut from Hashem. Shokel Bimoznaim Yachad Alot Havel. And it's honestly beautiful, but he, he describes Hashem as the as the mat the, the prime matchmaker, right? Um, 
Um, here we go. Uh, let me just move forward a little bit. Then he goes into Who else is he asking her shoots from? I think it's first from the Chatan, then from the Kala, then from the assembly. Right? Among the Jewish assembly here who is full of mitzvot. Finally, I think this one ends with Yeah, hold up. Amod, Amod, Rabbi Poni, Bar Poni, Hechatan, Ubarechet Hashem Hagadol, Kim Chaim, Kel Amuna, Vikola Amia, Nuachrech Amen, Kigadol Sechar, Amana. So if you look here, let me just go a little to the beginning. Even in this entire praise of Hashem, there's many, uh, you know, there, there's many references to the troubles of the Jewish people, right? Itim Zahu, Ivasrem Sos Kalpianavel, sometimes they're, they are Zocheh. And they and they receive joyous times. Upam to Tzadam Kishochev Leviam Barosh Chivel VeKashel Zavagam KeKriyatam Suf LaChafushe Sevel. And quoting the the Gemara, he says, and sometimes it's as difficult as 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 splitting the Yam Suf to to make uh, to to make uh, what's the word? Shiduchim. Uh, uh, where's where's this part about Galut? I'm sorry, I was looking for the part where he speaks about Galut. Okay, be that be that as it may. Typically, even in the happier occasions, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yitzchak stands out as a more serious paitan. His slichot and his kinot are exceptionally beautiful. Um, some historians have, uh, you know, speculated that some of them are for are, are for fast days, like Yalutenu Lezutenu Chushale Mahara, right? Like this one here. That perhaps uh, these were written for fast days where they where they instituted a communal fast for some sort of gzeira or for some sort of uh, you know, tribulation that the Jewish community was going upon. And so many of these slichot and kinot survive to this day in the Ashkenaz Machsorim, first of all, for their beauty, second of all, because they, they really emphasize a personal, a really personal firsthand experience of trials, tribulations, and suffering. And I thought to end, basically, uh, I think we're, we're mostly done this discussion of Shem Yitzchak. Rav Shlomi Yehuda Rappaport used to make a, a very interesting distinction. I think he was the Rav of Prague, the Rav of, the Rav of Pressburg. A very interesting distinction between the piyutim of, of the, the Paitane Ashkenaz and the piyutim of the Paitane Svarad. And the distinction I thought was very apt, and I've mentioned it before. He says the, the Paitanim in Ashkenaz and the Paitanim of the Kalirian Paitanim, when they speak, it's between Knesset Yisrael and Hashem. It's the Jewish people uh, beseeching Hashem for mercy or speaking to Hashem with love or praising Hashem. But when the Spanish poets write, it is always the soul speaking directly to Hashem. It's the nefesh of the person. It's, it's a, a man laying his soul bare before Hashem. And therefore, the, really the tone and the, the speech, the speakers, the, the, the poetic, the, the speakers of the piyutim of the Spanish are quite different than the speakers of the Paitanim uh, in Ashkenaz. And the, the, they're really, the function of Piyut in Ashkenaz was very different than the function of the, of the Piyut in Spain. In Spain, poetry in general was a function of society. It was especially a function of high society. But in Ashkenaz, Piyut was a function of the shul, of the synagogue. And for them, in as much as it was a function of the synagogue, poetry and Piyut was always a holy, endeavor and therefore it survived insofar as people 
who were educated enough in these genres and were held in high enough esteem could compose them and get them to be recited in the synagogue. But as time moved on and people, A, were no longer as proficient in the earlier forms and styles and the earlier Paitanim, and B, weren't held in high enough esteem to get their things put into the, into the statutory prayers, the Paitanim eventually, the era of the Paitanim and Ashkenaz came to, you know, uh, fizzled out. So we're going to discuss a little bit more next week. I hope to, to finish up some of the major Ashkenaz Paitanim. Among them would be Rebbeinu Gershom and Rashi and others who did compose Piyutim. But that's so much tonight for an introduction to the Paitanim of Ashkenaz. And God willing, when we finish these Paitanim, we will finally get to the Paitane Svarad and to any more Piyutim which are worthy of our study. So thank you everybody for your, <coughs> for your attention for attending, and Bezrat Hashem, we will continue next week with even more. So.